the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to be back in studio and live. Um, as you probably well, you may or may not know, I took uh, Monday off as well as Friday. Just hang out with Dan Rice. All of the uh, tubes and lines from the pick line were removed on Friday, and so he is uh, antibiotic and other medical paraphernalia free. In fact, we drove into work together this morning. We haven't done that in eight weeks, so it was really thrilling to uh, to ride with him into downtown where I drop him off and look forward to the end of the day when I pick him up there again. He's uh, back um on his feet. And we're uh, over the next four weeks going to be monitored uh, for um, with blood cultures for any future infections or uh, any indication that the one we were trying to kill has um, reared its ugly head. But we're confident that that will not be the case. So uh, glad to be back in studio and feeling rather celebratory. So there you have it. Also want to mention today we're going to be giving away four tickets, kind of a family four pack to the Portland singing Christmas tree. Now, um, you can enjoy discounts for the next few days uh, from the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. These are great tickets. I believe it's $5 off uh, per ticket. And these are the lowest prices you can get for the uh, Portland Singing Christmas Tree you have until mid-August um, to take advantage of these discounts. But today and the remainder of the week, twice on Friday, we're going to be giving away uh, four packs of Singing Christmas Tree tickets for you to enjoy. And we have a range of dates, and we'll share that with you a bit later. As well. Today on the program, we'll be talking with Abu Atala. He is the author of From Cairo to Christ How One Muslim's Faith Journey Shows the Way for Others. It's a fascinating story, uh, first of all, his own, and how many others are coming to faith in Christ in Egypt and uh, elsewhere in the Middle East and Arab countries, particularly following the Arab Spring. There is a, another side to the story we see emerging in the Middle East, and uh, we'll talk more about that with him later this hour. Then in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dr. William Briggs. He's a, a PhD in statistics. He's also a senior contributor to the stream. He's an adjunct professor at Cornell University. He breaks down in a recent column, the Google employee, James Damore's uh, viral commentary on his former employer. He'll join us at five. And then uh, the following segment, we'll talk with Roger Gannam. He's assistant vice president for legal affairs at Liberty Council on their uh, Supreme Court to, uh, petition. They are petitioning the Supreme Court on behalf of three California faith-based crisis pregnancy centers that are being forced to advertise uh, immediate free or low-cost abortions to their clients. And it's not only that. I mean, that's bad enough, but the they actually dictate how large the lettering has to be, which is enormous, and it, it, it borders on ridiculous. So we're going to talk about the legal parameters of this law in California and what uh, what the Liberty Council is asking uh, the Supreme Court in California to do about it. Uh, also, uh, Frank Peretti will join us. He's one of the keynote speakers at the upcoming Oregon Christian Writers Summer Conference. Now, if you are a writer, if you think you may have some gifting in this area, if you 
um, have been working on something, this is an excellent conference for you to come to hone your skills, to meet with the agents and people who are inside the business. It really is a, an amazing opportunity. We're going to talk with Frank Peretti a bit about that, but I would encourage you even now to go to Oregon Christian Writers um, webpage. You can simply Google Christian Writers Summer Conference and you can get all the important details. But this is a great conference for aspiring writers, seasoned writers, and all the folks in between. So that's coming up the uh, 15th through the 18th of this month at, um, let's see, it's uh, the Jansen Beach uh, Red Lion on the River. I think they call it now, Red Lion on the River. That's coming up at 5.30, so I hope you will join us. Well, today was certainly a sobering day following the United Nations approval of new sanctions against North Korea. Well, the sanctions were approved on Saturday with yes votes from both Russia and China. That rarely happens. The United Nations Security Council uh, Saturday passed a resolution and imposes new sanctions on North Korea for its continued intercontinental ballistic missile testing and violations of UN resolutions. With 15 votes in favor, the resolution 2371 was passed unanimously. Now, I have to say that U.N. resolutions don't generally have much um, heft to them, but we'll see what happens this time around. We do know that on Sunday, China officially admonished North Korea, do not violate the U.N.'s decision or provoke international society's goodwill by conducting missile launching or nuclear tests. Now, China certainly has the uh, the power, the influence, and the authority to do much more than that. And again, time will tell. Uh, meanwhile, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, he established an ultimatum for North Korea. The best signal that North Korea could give us that they're prepared to talk would be to stop these missile launches. Again, does that have any teeth to it? We'll see. Uh, Also, the Washington Examiner is reporting that the president of South Korea requested a phone call with President Trump on Sunday and reported that they agreed their countries must put maximum pressure and sanctions on North Korea under cooperation with the international community to have North Korea give up its nuclear and missile programs and choose the right path. That's easier said than done. Many would argue to North Korea, abandoning your nuclear program is the way to survive and thrive in the 21st century. The North Korean dictator and government says the only way we will survive in the 21st century is if we are a nuclear power. Meanwhile, it was learned today that North Korea reportedly has produced a a compact nuclear warhead that can be placed inside one of its advanced missiles, which are already believed to be capable of reaching half of the United States. Well, the jarring assessment was prepared in July by the Defense Intelligence Agency, according to the Washington Post. The Post was uh, was read parts of the DIA analysis, and the document was verified by other U.S. officials. Now, the intelligence community assesses North Korea has produced nuclear weapons for ballistic missile delivery to include delivery by ICBM-class missiles, uh, an excerpt from the DIA analysis states. Now, again, this was released in July. We don't know if that report was made available to the U.N. Security Council that voted uh, to increase sanctions there just a few days ago. It's now believed that dictator Kim Jong-un may control up to 60 nuclear weapons, the report goes on to say. It echoed some of the uh, evaluations made in a lengthy Japanese defense white paper also revealed uh, today. It is conceivable that North Korea's nuclear weapons program has already considerably advanced, and it's possible that North Korea has already achieved the minimization of nuclear weapons into warheads and has acquired nuclear warheads, Japan's defense minister said in a 500-page report. Reactions to the news highlight the stunning advancements depicted in this report, and it also uh, certainly calls one to consider its relationship, 
in terms of nuclear development with Iran. Some of those who've tangled with North Korea in the past advocated throwing diplomacy to the wayside. We've been playing the diplomatic game for a long time with North Korea, and it's only given uh, given them time to advance their weapons program, former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations John Bolton tweeted. Uh, a columnist for the Asia Times and a senior editor at the National Interest uh, said that uh, uh, on uh, Tuesday that North Korea was a full-fledged nuclear power. But the U.S. on Friday achieved what appeared to be a remarkable diplomatic uh, victory, securing the unanimous approval of tough new sanctions, including votes from Russia and China. Again, U.N. Security uh, Council resolutions not are notorious, rather, for being... Um, uh, weak and of little consequence. Meanwhile, North Korea is seriously considering a plan to fire missiles at Guam, we just learned. State media reported uh, hours after President Trump responded to reports of nuclear threats by saying the regime will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which the world has never seen before, end quote. Ji Song Lim, a ballistic missile operation unit for, for the regime, uh, will review a plan to fire a mid-range ballistic missile at U.S. island territory Guam on September 9th, according to the South Korea's uh, Yonhap News Agency. Well, in a statement released by state-run media, the Korean People's Army er, is reportedly looking into striking Guam to subdue the United States military bases on the U.S. territory, particularly the Anderson Air Force Base, where nuclear-capable bombers are stationed. A different statement released said that North Korea could carry out the preemptive operation if the United States showed signs of provocation. Uh, it's unlikely that they would move uh, unilaterally, particularly in view of this unanimous uh, U.N. resolution, but it certainly is sobering and demands some sort of response. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. Well, as I promised, we're going to be giving away tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree uh, throughout the remainder of this week, twice on Friday, and we're going to do that right now. So I'd like to congratulate, well, some caller, <laughs> uh, who will win a family four-pack of tickets to Portland Singing Christmas Tree at the Keller Auditorium. Tickets are on sale now with performances starting on Friday, November the 24th, and uh, they will run right through December the 3rd, and when you uh, call uh, to get your uh, your tickets or when you uh, the tickets are confirmed, the dates will be um, arranged at that time. So we'd love to give away this family four pack of tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree again runs November the 24th through December the 3rd. And the telephone number to call if you'd like to be that winner is 1-800-845-2162. 800-845-2162. If you're a longtime attendee of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, you know it's going to be a wonderful celebration. If it's your first time, it will introduce a new tradition that will probably become something uh, that your family celebrates for years to come. And again, that telephone number for your family, four pack, uh, four pack of tickets, 1-800-845-2162. Well, Anthem, one of the largest health insurers in the United States, announced on Monday that it will not offer plans through the Affordable Care Act's insurance marketplace in Nevada next year. They also expect to to drastically scale back the plans to offer in Georgia, leaving only some insured in rural counties. Um, that otherwise would have been left without coverage. With the removal of Anthem, there are 14 counties in Nevada that will not have health insurance for individuals, according 
uh, to reports. Well, planning and pricing for Affordable Care Act compliant health plans has become increasingly difficult due to a shrinking and deteriorating individual market, as well as continual changes and uncertainty in federal operations, rules and guidelines, including cost sharing reduction subsidies and the restoration of taxes on fully insured coverage. Anthem said in its statement on Monday, the move wasn't surprising. Analysts, rather, uh, said four months ago that the insurance company was expected to exit a high percentage of uh, its plans in the 144 regions where it participated. President Trump, who's often uh, railed against the Affordable Care Act, uh, but has uh, been unable so far to uh, push a replacement through the the Republican-led Senate, retweeted the news of Anthem's exit rather from the health care marketplace. He's often suggested letting Obamacare implode, which it's um, already headed toward, but would cost individuals, not just in terms of dollars and cents, but would cost Americans significantly. Aetna announced in May that it planned to uh, completely leave the Obamacare marketplace by 2018. Our individual commercial products lost nearly $700 million between 2014 and 2016 and are projected to lose uh, more than $200 million in 2017, despite a significant reduction in membership, the company said in a statement. Those losses are the result of marketplace structural issues that have led to co-op failures and carrier exits and subsequent risk pool deterioration. Humana, which covers about 150,000 people in 11 states, announced earlier this year that it would leave the Affordable Care Act's public insurance exchange. Humana was the first major insurer to cast no confidence vote uh, about uh, selling individual plans on the marketplace in 20 or rather for 2018 according to the New York Times its main focus has been selling private insurance through Medicare a Massachusetts based um uh, insurance company Minuteman Health announced in June that it plans to withdraw from the market in New Hampshire and Massachusetts uh, due to a lack of capital. The insurer has been placed in state receivership. Molina Healthcare Inc. revealed this month it plans to withdraw from the marketplace in Utah and Wisconsin and also said it will review its offerings in other states as performance in Florida and Washington have been dismal. And a startup, Harkin Health Insurance, a, by United Health Group Inc., uh, Harkin announced last year that it would pull out of the marketplace in the two states where it offered insurance. The insurer said it would no longer offer plans in Georgia or Chicago. United Health also pulled out of the individual insurance marketplace this year, and the dominoes continue to fall. Meanwhile, Republicans haven't scored a marquee legislative win for President Trump, but as they prepare and have now left Capitol Hill for their summer vacation, they insist they've made a series of serious gains on many nuts and bolts bills to reshape the government. Uh, failure to get a health care bill passed was a significant blow in tax reform. The other big ticket reform that congressional Republicans have pledged is struggling to gain footing. But Republicans said they have taken major steps to rein in Obama era regulations, approved legislation over President Trump's wishes to sanction Russia, confirmed a Supreme Court justice, revamped the Veterans Affairs Department and avoided a government shutdown. We lost on the big issues. The headlines are about the big issues and not the bipartisan stuff that we do, said Senator Tim. Scott from South Carolina. Entering the year with control over the White House, both chambers of Congress for the first time since 2006, Republicans had grand plans. Repealing and replacing Obamacare was the first, followed by tax reform, an infrastructure package, a crackdown on sanctuary cities and tort reform. Some of those, including a hard-won health care overhaul, have cleared the House, but none has cleared the Senate, leaving House Republicans steaming.
One, David Schweikert, Arizona Republican, said in the wake of last week's failed health care vote in the Senate, a lot of us here in the House were gearing up again to do the hard work and try to make the mechanics and the dollars and the demographics work. And we wake up the next morning and the rug's been pulled out again by the Senate. Well, the House left for its five-week summer break last week. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell out of Kentucky had planned to keep his chamber in session for an extra two weeks to work on nominations and other business. But the Senate adjourned Thursday, a week ahead of that modified schedule with no real floor business scheduled until after Labor Day. Leaders planned a series of pro forma sessions in the coming weeks, which would prevent Mr. Trump from making recess appointments. Instead of the big uh, ticket items, congressional Republicans counted reeling or repealing rather more than a dozen Obama era rules using a law called Congressional Review Act and confirming Justice Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court as wins. After all, that's what they have done thus far. And we'll see what happens when they return again after Labor Day. Well, CNN reports um, all the signs suggest that 2018 is going to be a very good year for Democrats. Midterm elections are historically terrible for the president's party. In 18 of the last 20 midterm elections, the president's party has lost seats. In those 18 elections, the average seat uh, loss is 33. Those numbers are even more daunting for President under 50 percent job approval, as Donald Trump is right now. Since 1946, the average seat loss in the House in that situation is 36. But CNN goes on. But before Democrats get too delirious about the election to come, they should read this paragraph from David Wasserman's terrific analysis of the 2018 election on 538. He writes, even if Democrats were to win every single 2018 House and Senate race for seats representing places that Hillary Clinton won or that Trump won by less than three percentage points, a pretty good midterm by historical standards, they could still fall short of the House majority and lose five Senate seats. Well, that's absolutely stunning and reflective of the advantage Republicans have going into 2018. One in the House built on having largely controlled the 2010 redistricting process and the other in the Senate based on how great the 2006 and 2012 elections were for Democrats. In the House, there were are 23 districts currently held by a Republican that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. Of those 23, just eight went for Barack Obama over Mitt Romney in 2012 as well. Even so, if Democrats won all 23 of the seats Clinton carried that are represented by Republicans and lost none of the dozens of seats Trump won that are held by Democrats, the party still comes a seat short of a majority. Republicans, quite simply, did a very good job in drawing the congressional lines in the states where they control the entire process after the 2010 census. Large populations of Democrats are, as Wasserman notes, packed into urban districts, while Republican voters are more spread out among suburban and rural uh, seats. That reality, coupled with the fact that political tribalism is on the rise, means that there are just far fewer chances for Democrats to make gains than there are. There were a decade or two ago. In 1996, there were 108 crossover districts where the member of Congress was from a different party than the presidential candidate who carried the seat. A good midterm election wouldn't uh, be enough to switch control of the House. Democrats, Democrats rather, would need a great one, which is possible, especially given Trump's uh, dismal approval ratings and the lack of legislative accomplishments for Congress so far, but never a certainty. So uh, an interesting forecast for the midterms to come, keeping in mind that one can never really forecast midterms to come. Up next, we're going to talk with Abu Atala. He is the author of From Cairo to Christ, How One Muslim's Faith Journey Shows the Way for Others. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
We're back 36 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest writes in his book, From Cairo to Christ, if I were to become a Christian, it would mean not only changing my religion, but changing my whole identity and bringing shame upon my family. Changing from Islam to Christianity would mess up my life forever. Well, so writes Abu Atala who grew up in Cairo as an ordinary Egyptian Muslim. He was deeply embedded in his family, his religion and culture, and for a time he was part of the Muslim Brotherhood. But as he came of age, he began to encounter people who followed a different way, who called themselves Christians, and a radically new life became possible, a great cost and risk, yet with great joy. From Cairo to Christ is the remarkable story of how one Muslim man was drawn to the Christian faith. God later called him to be an ambassador for Christ to Muslims, and his ministry has helped hundreds come to Christ. Discover how the good news of Jesus transforms lives in Muslim communities around the world in his book, From Cairo to Christ, How One Muslim's Faith Journey Shows the Way for Others. Thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to have you with us. Thank you. Glad to be with you. This is such an important story, and I appreciate your sharing it in such uh, such detail. You write about being a young man and uh, having a, a good friend who had joined Muslim Brotherhood, and you sort of found yourself uh, in that group as well. Let's talk a bit about the boy that you were that ultimately, uh, with your best friend uh, in your last year of high school, decided to join the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, for me, uh, it was, you know, high school, and in high school, I wanted to get good grades to go to good colleges. So for me as a Muslim, the good deeds you do, God would reward you with that, and I was hoping for better grades. So that was one of the, uh, you know, ideas that, well, if I do join that group and pray more and be more religious, God would reward me with better grades in school. Mm -hmm. But also having your best friend, you know, that you trust to see him and his dad joining the Muslim Brotherhood, why not me? You know, if my friend can do it, why not me? So, those, you know, camaraderie with a friend as well as hoping that God would reward me with good grades. And in the beginning, the Muslim Brotherhood was not really, they were more religious, they just came out of jail. Sadat, you know, released them out of jail to find the socialists who wanted to have a coup against them. So they were more religious group. Later in the 70s, uh, they became more of a militaristic and radical later on. Now, you witnessed some of that um, that radical um, Islamic uh, worldview expressed while you were at a uh, student at Union, um, uh, uh, rather involved at uh, Cairo University, uh, and aspired to be a part of the, the student union. Talk a little bit about what you saw in the mid-70s as the Muslim Brotherhood became a bit more aggressive and more radicalized. Well, the most vivid picture for me when we were in the restaurant or the cafeteria, actually, more uh, of the trade school in Kai University were uh, a fundamentalist brotherhood. You know, they were a little bit different clothes and so on, with a beard and so on. He found, you know, a lot. we have almost 12 million Christians live in Egypt. And they don't cover up as women, but she was wearing a cross. So he grabbed the cross, threw it in the ground, stepped on it, slapped her, and spit on her and says, you infidel going to hell. And I was shocked when I've seen that treatment. Uh, and how dare you, know, who gave you that right? We're all Muslims, but we have no right to treat Christians in that way. So I kind of put the fault on him, not on the religion. Uh, but I was shocked that another person like me, who was a part of the Muslim Brotherhood, could act like this. And that was really abhorring to me. I just could not. And then as they developed, they started to separate 
the women from the men in the university don't sit together. And some of them actually were beating the Christian professors, you know, who who are teaching us, saying they are infidels and we should not be taught by infidels. And that was another, you know, these are very good, highly educated who wanted to spend their lives in teaching us. And these guys go against them and beat them even in their own university. And at this time, cops were um, were tolerated. Uh, there was not the, the kind of division that we're seeing today. So this was a, a dramatic departure from what you had experienced before. You bet. I mean, the problem for me was with my mom's time, which is 10 years earlier, you know, I was there. But otherwise, you know, I have a problem because in my time, things have changed. Things have changed. Yeah. So that's why I was wondering what's the difference between my mom's time, where we had a lot of Christian friends, where we had Christian neighbors, and then moved into a almost antagonistic time. Yeah, very, very. And that was really reason. a change. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a different spirit. You write that you lived in a very cosmopolitan neighborhood. There were Europeans there, and one of them was a friend of yours who took you to a meeting where you could uh, meet. Uh, Christian women who were considered um, to be classier, worldlier. Um, they certainly dressed different than Muslim women. You were dragged to a meeting, but were surprised to learn that this was, in fact, a Christian meeting. Tell us about it. Well, my my Christian friend, or actually wasn't Christian, my German friend was German, and he was atheist. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, I, I could not believe that he took me to a Christian place you know, to a group of young people who are worshiping, you know, uh, Christ. And he was more interested in them because they spoke German. You know, was more interested in, in, uh, in her, their German and their nice-looking young ladies. He was not interested in Christ. <laughs> what, what surprised you when you ended up at this, this Bible study, this worship service? Well, I mean, there was quite a few things. But one of the, you know, having men and women together praying in, in that same place. So that was different. The second one, the way they, they prayed, you know, it's not like us prescribed prayers and you pray in a certain way and that's it. You know, you know how many times you pray, you know what you say. It was kind of spontaneous and that was different. The third part was how, how in the world can you address God, the Holy One, uh, as father, God could not be a father. That relationship is between humans, but with not, not between men and women, between God and man. You know, so that was different for me. But they were very sincere. And I was really pleased with their sincerity, and they wanted to serve God, and they wanted to obey God. But what made me wonder, someone said, Can you, uh, thank you for helping with my homework. And mm-hmm. I said, come on, you know, God has much more important things to worry about than take care of your homework. Something wrong is here, you know. So that's that's some of the things. Yeah, that was were surprising. You write that Allah demands submission and obedience, whereas the Christian God asks for our love. The nature of Allah is not revealed in the Quran; only His will is. As a result, few yeah. Muslims will say that they know Allah Himself. They only know what He demands. Uh, this difference between the Christian God of love and the Muslim God of law and justice would change my life. Talk a little bit yeah. about that journey from this initial meeting where you're witnessing Christians in worship, and you're really questioning and exploring what is uh, the Christian faith uh, and, and uh, how that began to change you as you write. You know, 
I, when I've seen that group, I, automatically I start to think, wait a minute, there's an alternative way, there's a different way to approach God. You know, I approach him as in the Muslim Brotherhood, which he was distant, and, you know, for me, I don't have that relationship, that very close relationship. I just obey him, I do what he wanted to do. But then I've seen a different way. <coughs> and that was really interesting for me, how they approach God. And again, I do believe in God's sovereignty, that he works things out for you. So my brother used to date a Christian woman. We usually date them, but not marry them. We marry a wholesome Muslim woman. So, but she gave him a Bible, a New Testament, and I found it at home, and I was delighted. Now I could see the Bible, because everybody says the Bible is corrupt, but now I don't want to hear what they're saying. I want to see it with my own eyes and see what it says. And I found in it some of the answers that I've seen why those Christians pray this way and why they're asking. Ask and you will receive, you know, calling God Father. So I was very, I mean, I read most of the Bible, the New Testament, in a few days. And then a couple of things happened, and one of them I call it actually my bingo prayer, because we used to chase each other in the desert. And as we chased each other in the desert, the car got stuck in the sand, and we tried to start. It didn't start. So I said, you know what? I'm going to try like those Christians if their prayers works. So for me, it was like, you know, playing bingo, hoping you win. <laughs> so I prayed. I didn't know what to do, except I did fold my hand and said, you know, Father, God, help me. And I went out of the car. Somebody came, pulled the car, car started. And he says, oh, well, if I was a Muslim and I prayed, the same thing would have happened. So I kind of left it there. Then I went again. And I had similar things about riding a motorcycle. And my German friend, again, was helping me with that. So I did. And God, and God answered? I hear music, so I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, we'll take a quick break, but uh, we'll hear the rest of that story when we return. Again, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, the book From Cairo to Christ. We're talking with Abu Atala. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book From Cairo to Christ, How One Muslim's Faith Journey Shows the Way for Others. Abu Atala is my guest. He's the founder and CEO of European Training Center and a pastor, professor, and missionary with the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. He has a Master of Divinity from Calvin Theological Seminary and has ministered to 56 countries on six continents. We were talking just before the break about how uh, you were beginning to, to test out this notion that you could have a personal relationship with God, that he would hear you when you uh, when you pray. And while it may have been uh, sort of a, a very simple effort uh, stepping out on and to test whether or not what you had been witnessing in others was true, um, God answered you in, in some way that was meaningful. Yeah. I mean, that with the car and then with the motorcycle, that really happens. And, you know, men don't read instructions and listen to instructions. <laughs> I got on the motorcycle, you know, and I was so excited about it and just, you know, like Lawrence of Arabia riding his horse and there's no stop signs in the desert. And I went as fast as I can. And it was an Eastern European motorcycle like uh, Harley Davidson, a really big motorcycle. And suddenly I lost control of the motorcycle because I didn't know how to stop it and what to do. And I didn't know what to do except said, Jesus, help me. I don't know why it came up, but that's what happened. And my friend came up to me and he said, you know, God saved you. He says, well, you're an atheist anyway. Yeah, you don't believe in God. And I did not pray to God. I prayed to Jesus. And Jesus is not God. So you can see that the fall just comes out automatically. Mm-hmm. But then I went home and I started, well, 
The first time was coincidence, about the second time. Also, how about what I read in the Bible? Also, how about what I've seen those young people, Christian young people, living exactly as the Bible said? So there must be something right about that. Mm. And that's when I started to join that group and have a Bible study and ask very frank and honest questions of them, just to figure out what's going on. Yeah. And it took me about two and a half to three years to finally come around, you know, to the realization that Christianity is right, and Jesus is saying the truth in the Bible, after all the questions that I had and saw. Now, when you say, so that was the beginning. When you say that you came to faith in Christ, for a, the Western listener, that sounds like a very simple thing. Um, but as I quoted from uh, your book earlier, uh, if you were to become a Christian, it would be very costly to you personally, and it would cost your family. Talk a little bit about what it means to become a Christian if you and your family are Muslim. You see, the consequences was the issue. Accepting Christ, you know, as I read and said, He is true and the Bible is true, so Jesus Christ is the truth. Uh, that was the issue. I always get tired sometimes with the preacher who said, you know, just become a Christian, all your thing, everything in life would be wonderful. For me, I, w- I actually did a sermon and I said, good news is disastrous news. Hmm. For a Muslim, the moment we make that decision to follow Christ, the opposite side of that, we declare that Islam is wrong, and we left Islam, and we put our family into shame. And for our culture, putting a family into shame is the worst thing you can do to your family. You know, so that's, that was an issue for me. My family were really nice to me, said, we're not going to kill you, but you have to leave the home. And I was 19 years old, and I had a great relationship with my family, so that was very difficult. My university, the dean that vowed that I will never graduate as long as I'm a Christian, and I had no job. So I had no place to stay, had no place to study, I had no place to have an income with. And that's when they put all the screws, and the 12 people, in, uh, when I was at home before I left, 12 people wanted to kill me. Two of them were my best friends in kindergarten. And to make that more complicated, the mosque that I used to attend in the Muslim Brotherhood mosque declared that I was an apostate and I should be killed. That means I left the religion of Islam formally. And they usually give you three days. If you don't recant, then they declare this against you. Mm. So after three days, they actually gave me a week, and I have not changed, so they declared that sentence. And he is a 19-year-old young man with no job, no place to live, no income, and with people after him trying to kill him. So that was just very difficult for me. And I looked for places for six hours. Some of the Christians were afraid to take me to their homes. And and I said, I left my family. I left everything, and the Christians are afraid even to host me for a couple of days till I find a place to stay. But finally, a family did host me. But that was the beginning of my troubles. I'm going for three years where things were very difficult. They were looking after me. Only my mom, who's still a mother, she brings my favorite food and meet me in a neutral place to make sure that I'm eating. Mm, a mother's love. So, in, Yeah. In front of people, she didn't want to be put to shame as a family. But behind, when people don't see, she's still a mother. But it took me three years, and finally I figured out I cannot survive, either financially or find a place to stay. I found the room, but I don't have a job to be able to pay for that room. And it was really difficult. And then my pastor got me a scholarship in America to study. And that's how it worked. 
Yeah. There's a longer, you know, as you read the book, you find a longer way to get to that. But that's the gist of it. Now, our, our time is running short, but one of the things you write is that many Muslims are coming to know Christ um, and that you see the events in the Arab world as leading to further growth in Christianity, the kind of hardship that you face, the kind of hardship that Muslim background believers face, that's drawing many to, to faith in Christ. It seems counterintuitive. Can you comment on that? Yeah, in the last 20 years, we have more Muslims who have become Christian than the last 1,400 years since the beginning of Islam. Uh, like some people would tell you in Iran that the best evangelist from the history of Iran was Ayatollah Khomeini, because he alienated so many young people of Islam that they looked for Christianity. Uh, Algeria is the same way. We have 100,000 people who are Algerian who became Christians in Algeria. Uh, ISIS has done that in Syria, and many of the Syrians are now, they tell us, we're not interested in Islam. We've seen what Islam is all about. Tell us about Jesus. So we've seen in the last 20 years, I've never seen in my entire 35 years of ministry, so many Muslims coming to Christ. And you can see also the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt did the same thing. We actually have now 2 million uh, atheists in Egypt in reaction to what the Brotherhood have done in their lives Mm. in Egypt. You know, and some of them, of course, become Christians. Yes. You know, so that's happening already, and God uses a weird way, or if you call it God's sense of humor, is different than our understanding <laughs> of history. Yes. Well, the book, uh, once again, is is an absolutely fascinating story, and I think you'll find it encouraging as well. It's titled From Cairo to Christ, How One Muslim's Faith Journey Shows the Way for Others. And to to read about the ministry that God has called you to and how you're effectively leading many uh, to Jesus, despite the, the difficulty they face in making that commitment, is uh, an inspiration and an encouragement, uh, certainly to me and I know to others of your readers. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Again, my guest, you uh, you too, Abu Atala. And by the way, if you're interested in learning about how you can minister the love of Jesus, the gospel uh, to your Muslim neighbors, they are coming to this country, and I believe God is calling us to reach out and minister. Let me encourage you to check out Redeeming the Nations Ministries. You can go to their website, RTNM, RedeemingTheNationsMinistries.org. You can also phone 503-533-5133 during regular office hours, 503-533-5133. They're not only ministering to Muslims all over the world effectively, but they're also training believers here on how to uh, extend the love of Christ and share the gospel effectively. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. Seven minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. The stream's Dr. William Briggs writes, diversity is our weakness. Dr. Briggs broke down uh, Google employee James Dammore's uh, viral commentary on his former employer. Dammore's main argument is that men and women are biologically different in many ways, and he asserts that biological differences are not just social constructs. For sharing that truth in an internal memo and exposing the uh, diversity agenda of Google, he was fired. Well, the Google case hits a larger issue. 
Um, are we at a point in our society where diversity is religion and we silence anyone who objects? Certainly that's not true diversity. George Orwell said the further a society drifts from truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. Well, here to talk with us is uh, Dr. William Briggs. He is a senior contributor to the stream. He's a writer, philosopher, and itinerant uh, science scientist living on a small but densely populated island in the Atlantic Ocean. He earned his PhD from Cornell University in statistics, where he's an adjunct professor. He studied the philosophy of science and the use and misuses of uncertainty, the corruption of science, and the uselessness of most predictions. He began life as a cryptologist rather, for the Air Force, slipped into weather and climate forecasting, and matured into an epistemal... Epistemologist. He maintains an active and lively blog at wmbriggs.com and tweets at uh, Emperor WI. And the WI, by the way, are in caps. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for that introduction, too. (laughs) That bungled introduction. I appreciate your taking up this uh, this case of the uh, former Google employee who is making a, a point in an internal memo that was apparently leaked and he's now lost his job. Uh, I listened to many of the reports as I was driving into work earlier this morning, and if I were to accept what was being reported, uh, Mr. Dammore had some very offensive things to say. Let's talk about what he actually said in this internal memo challenging uh, his employer from within. Oh, my God, so many people are lying about this. They're just lying their heads off. All the major uh, news media organizations like the Washington Post, CNN, and so forth, they're saying things like, Damore said that women aren't biologically fit for tech jobs. I heard that report. This is just a blatant lie. It's a terrible lie. It's a bald-faced, open lie. They know they're lying. He didn't say anything like that. In fact, he said the exact opposite. In his memo, which was meant to be internally only, he called for greater inclusion of women, greater inclusion of blacks and other minorities. He called for the exact opposite of this. The only thing he said was the truth that everybody throughout all human history has known is that men and women, are, on average, uh, they're biologically different for one, and on average they have different interests. They have different behaviors that are probably driven by these biological differences. And everybody knows this to be true. It's not in the least controversial, but it does go against the central belief, the central or core belief of the cult of diversity, which is that everybody is and must be the same. Yeah, which is, it's, it's almost comical when you consider diversity as the, the hue and cry. Um, the other mistake he made, and you point out, and I'm tongue-in-cheek, uh, you point out on your column, is that these biological differences aren't just socially constructed, and that, again, uh, is not permitted to be said out loud in certain environments. Exactly so. That, that's, what the, that's what the cult of diversity would have you believe. Any, any, uh, any differences that are seen are culturally enforced. They're products of the male-white domination over women and minorities, things like this, that force people somehow through some mysterious power to believe that we are, are not the same. We are not equal. We're not all exactly the same. And of course, this poor fellow had no power whatsoever. He was instantly fired by these people who claim to have no power. He'll be fine himself. You know, this guy, we should tell your audience, he was immediately offered jobs at uh, Gab.ai, the kind of a freer version of Twitter. 
and other tech companies immediately put their hands out to him. He's thinking about suing, or so the word is. So he'll be fine. But in his um, in his memo, he said that conservatives at Google uh, keep their mouth shut because of the culture of shaming and misrepresentation of conservative viewpoints. And he said that conservatives are everywhere in fear of their job. And Google proved him right 100% on all of those contentions because he was immediately canned. Now, but think about all of the other thousands of engineers who are faithful Christians, for instance, or who are conservative, who are now today in fear of their jobs. Yeah, yeah. Um Again, I wanted to point out that this was written as an internal, modest, never-meant-for-outside-eyes memo titled Google's Ideological Echo Chamber, and that was the point that he was attempting to make. He also wrote that Google's political bias has equated the freedom from offense with psychological safety. Um, And you make reference to George Orwell in putting this into a broader context that might... Uh, help us all be a little bit alarmed as we should be. Yeah, you wonder if anybody actually read 1984, (laughs) because everything that 1984 said uh, seems to be coming true. Uh, Orwell said himself, he said, the further a society drifts from truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. And that is absolutely the case in poor Damore's case. It's, it's, It's true for many, many people, not just him. Uh, large segments of universities, uh, parts of the government, uh, major corporations, all require, uh, you know, acquiescence to this cult of diversity. And maybe I didn't make it clear in my piece enough is that silence will not be enough. Mm-mm. You're not going to just be able to go to work at Google now in the future and think, you know what, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I don't believe all this stuff, but I'm going to not say anything and I'll get by. That's not going to be the case. No. They're going to institute sensitivity training, so-called sensitivity training, other things. You're going to be made to put that pinch of incense into the flame and say, I think diversity is the God we should all worship. And if you don't do that, you're going to be out on your ear. Um, he also wrote that viewpoint diversity is arguably the most important type of diversity and political orientation is one of the most fundamental and significant ways in which people view things differently. But that is precisely what is forbidden in the cult of diversity, as you put it. Exactly so. Diversity is not diversity in the English language sense of the word. Diversity is uniformity. Diversity is mandatory quotas. Diversity is blind obedience to the central tenet of this equalitarianism, this egalitarian, excuse me, egalitarianism that insists everybody is identical. Everybody is the same. And it's only these cultural constructs that are keeping us from achieving this uh, this unity, which they will call diversity. That's it. Of course, everybody knows it's preposterous. It has nothing to do with the way people really are. But they're insisting on this. Yeah, and insist they will. Well, Dr. Briggs, thank you so much for your column and for talking about it with us today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it very much. Uh, again, I would recommend the book, You Will Be Made to Care, The War on Faith, Family, and Your Freedom to Believe. Eric Erickson and Bill uh, Blankshane uh, were my guests some, it's probably been months ago now, but it makes the very point uh, that Dr. Briggs was making, keeping your head down and your mouth shut will be insufficient. Um, This guy, he's bright, he's capable, a lot of people want him to work for them, but in trying to make the point uh, inside the organization he worked for, and again, the headline was Google's ideological echo chamber, cost him his job. Very uh, interesting 
sample of, uh, of the challenge. Again, you will be made to care the war on faith, family, and your freedom to believe. Eric Erickson and Bill Blankenshain, a great uh, read on the subject. Up next, we're going to talk with Roger Gannon. He's Assistant Vice President of Legal Affairs at Liberty Council. We're going to talk about their petitioning of the Supreme Court on behalf of three California-based crisis pregnancy centers. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, Liberty Council is filing a petition to the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of three California faith-based crisis pregnancy centers that are being forced to advertise an offer of immediate free or low-cost abortion to their clients, according to state law. Well, the law forces Liberty Council's clients to speak a message that is profoundly at odds with their religious beliefs and directly contradicts what they actually want to say and what they stand for. Well, here to talk with us about that is uh, Roger Gannam. He's Assistant Vice President of Legal Affairs at Liberty Council. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we're familiar with this uh, state law because there have been attempts here in the state of Oregon, and I know other places around the country, to do the same thing. Let's start by describing uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with what uh, state law requires the, uh, the pregnancy resource centers in California to do. Well, it's, uh, it's really offensive. This law requires nonprofit, even Christian pregnancy resource centers that exist for the, the main reason of turning women away from abortion. This law requires them to essentially advertise for abortions provided by the state of California. So anyone who walks into a, one of these crisis pregnancy centers or goes to their website, the first thing they see is an advertisement for a free or cheap abortion from the state of California before they ever get a chance to hear the life-affirming message that these pregnancy resource centers want to share with these women. Uh, it is a, a huge affront to free speech and an example of a of massive government overreach into the faith-based community. Absolutely. I should point out that the law was co-sponsored by the National Abortion Rights Action League, or NARAL, and they demand that the, that the advertising uh, be done in such a way that it, is, uh, it outsizes everything else. Uh, for example, it prescribes what the font size should be. Uh, what the language uh, required should be. It should be uh, uh, printed in 11 languages, uh, 22 pages. I mean, it's really quite extensive. Not only that there be a message, but what that message looks like, the size, the languages, and so on that it has to be uh, made available in. That's right. It doesn't only require these pregnancy resource centers to share the government's message. It requires them to favor the government's message and make it front and center uh, and make it more visible than anything else that the, the resource center may have to say. Um, the fact that it's made it through two courts still intact uh, really boggles the mind, and, and we sincerely hope that the U.S. Supreme Court will now take up this case uh, and end this, this travesty. Uh, and, and when you think about the fact that lives are at stake here, uh, and NARAL, uh, the National Abortion Rights uh, League, you know, co-sponsoring this law uh, really tells you everything that you need to know. And here's one more fact. Places that offer abortions at full retail prices don't have to advertise the free and cheap abortions that the state of California provides, like the pregnancy resource centers do. So that tells you that this really isn't about providing women a choice. This is about propping up the abortion industry, uh, and that's the only thing it's about, and we really hope the Supreme Court will remedy this. 
I think it's important to mention as well that the law charges a cumulative fine of $1,000 for every repeated instance that the notice is not communicated to a client. Um, this really goes to the freedom of speech. Uh, absolutely. This, this is fundamental speech, uh, the right for a faith-based organization to, to say what it wants, to, to, to participate in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, it's being challenged, and it's had it's a price tag put on it to where if five women come into your resource center uh, and don't see this notice, uh, that's $5,000 fine uh, right there. Um, it is really ridiculous, and uh, it's not surprising, unfortunately, uh, after we see what the state of California is doing to one of our other clients, Sandra Merritt, who tried to expose the, the baby-selling uh, practice mm-hmm. of Planned Parenthood and, and other abortion providers, um, to see how the state of California is trying to put her in jail, it really shouldn't surprise us that they're taking this, this hard-line stance against uh, free speech, against pro-life speech uh, in that state. Uh, it's, it's, it's a state that is absolutely 100% in favor of abortion and presented as a, as a social good, something that we ought to want and ought to turn women towards as the, as the preference uh, rather than one choice among many. Yeah, I like what Matt Staver, who's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, said. He said this law is like forcing the Sierra Club to advocate for oil spills or demanding St. Jude expose their patients to lead poisoning. It's a it's a great analogy, but of course, abortion is intended uh, to and specifically designed to kill. So it's a very very serious issue. You're right, and, and it's a great analogy. Uh, and sometimes analogies actually seem extreme compared to the reality. In this case, it's the other way around. Uh, as ridiculous as it would be for the Sierra Club to advocate for oil spills, uh, that's mild compared to what this law requires pro-life, pro-life pregnancy centers to say. So you are petitioning the U.S. Supreme Court. What should we expect in the short and then ultimately the long term? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, unfortunately, the Supreme Court takes only a tiny fraction of all the cases that are presented to it. So we know that we have an uphill climb to get the court to hear this case. Uh, the timing of that will be uh, months from now before we know anything. The way it works is the judges will, will look at our petition. Uh, they'll have a conference. They'll decide if they want to take up the case. Uh, and then they'll, they'll enter an order, either accepting it or rejecting it. Uh, but like I said, that, that will be months from now in all likelihood. Uh, and so we will be praying and, and hoping that uh, they will take up this case and, and remedy this real travesty against free speech. In the meantime, what are the pregnancy resource centers required to do? They're required to post this sign uh, in their lobby. Uh, like you said, in, in a 48-point font, I and mean, anyone who's ever oh, played with Microsoft Word knows that that's huge. It's a huge, huge sign. Uh, they're required to put it on their websites in a, in a font that is larger and more noticeable than anything else on the website. Uh, really, these pregnancy resource centers have to violate their conscience and have to promote abortion, which is contrary to their the very reason for their existence. Uh, and and it must it just must drive them crazy and and and, and really make them sad to. Uh, to go to work and to do what they do, knowing that the first word out of their mouth every day is about the free and cheap abortion before mm-hmm. they ever get to the pro-life message. Hmm. Are they allowed to offer a disclaimer? Um, you know, that hasn't been tested under the law. So offering a disclaimer uh, really subjects them to the risk of that same $1,000 and instant yeah. fine. Uh, and so uh, that, that's a great question, and, and it, it puts them at a huge risk to even try something like that. Mm. Well, I think prayer at this point is what we ought to be engaged in until the Supreme Court 
uh, looks at the matter and decides to uh, to take it up or, or let it stand. Uh, are there any lower courts between where you stand now and the Supreme Court? Are you trying to expedite a final decision or are there other steps that can be taken if the Supreme Court declines? No, unfortunately, we've uh, we've now run through both layers in the federal court system, the trial court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, to try to get to the U.S. Supreme Court. If the U.S. Supreme Court will not take up the case, it's not over. Uh, we just have to go back to the trial court and essentially uh, work harder to, to prove what ought to be obvious on the surface, which is that this is infringing on our clients' free speech rights. So the case won't be over if the Supreme Court says no, uh, but it will be an even greater uphill climb to, to get back there uh, should we need to. Mm. Well, we'll certainly uh, pray and follow uh, the story along with you. Thank you so much for, uh, for telling us about it. Well, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Again, uh, Roger Gannam is Assistant Vice President of Legal Affairs at uh, Liberty Council. And we're waiting now to see if the Supreme Court will, in fact, decide to hear this case. And as he pointed out, it's going to take uh, months for that to uh, to happen. In the meantime, they'll have to, to post this uh, nefarious information at their sites. And he's only representing three of the pregnancy resource centers in California. And, of course, there are many, many others in the large Uh, state of California. Up next, we're going to talk with Frank Peretti. He's going to be uh, one of the keynote speakers at the Oregon Christian Writers Summer Conference. Uh, You can uh, check out more information on their website. You can either Google Oregon Christian Writers Conference or you can go to Christian Writers, uh, OregonChristianWriters.org, and uh, there's a link there for you as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, I want to let you know that the Oregon Christian Writers Summer Conference is coming up Tuesday, August the 15th through Friday, August the 18th at Red Lion on the River. That's at Jansen Beach. And this year, the keynoters are Frank Peretti and Tessa Afshar. We're excited that the 2017 conference is coming. Now, every year, Oregon Christian Writers brings top national editors, agents, award-winning authors, and they help writers, just like you, of all levels and multiple genres take their writing to the next level. There's rich time for fellowship, learning, for worship, a time to study your craft, to meet editors and agents, get feedback, receive next step advice from mentors, and refresh your writing goals. Some of the special highlights would include uh, critique, um, night owls, and the Thursday evening Cascade Awards and dinner reception. You can visit the Summer Conference webpage, look for links for information about book editors, agents, mentors, and manuscripts, uh, how to submit them and guidelines and all of that. Well, as I mentioned, Frank Peretti is one of the keynote speakers, and I know lots of folks are going to be excited to hear from him. He is, of course, one of America's um, uh, top Christian uh, uh, writers, uh, best-known authors. Newsweek credited him with having the hottest novels in Christian fiction. His multiple award-winning books have sold more than 15 million copies, and Time Magazine called him the father of Christian fiction. Noted as one of the biggest surprises in publishing by People Magazine and a plot magician by USA Today, he is a natural storyteller. His career catapulted into the public eye with his uh, release of This Present Darkness. The book appeared on bookstore journal uh, bestseller list every month for over eight years. And with his second spiritual warfare novel, Piercing the Darkness, captivating uh, more readers as well. Well, together, the two sold 3.5 million copies. Well, over the years, movies have been derived from uh, his writing and his work has uh, been featured in USA Today, Publishers Weekly, Newsweek, The New York Times. I could go on and on and on. The cool thing is he's going to be right here in Portland for the Oregon Christian Writers Conference. And he joins us now to talk a little bit about that. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. 
wow. Are you exhausted? (laughs) How did you get all that done, and and you're still such a young man? Oh, yeah, I feel so young. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are so delighted that you're coming to the Portland area for the Oregon Christian Writers Conference. Now, some of our listeners have been before. They're excited that the 2017 conference is coming up. Others are perhaps a little bit reluctant to to come because it, it makes them appear to think, well, maybe I am a writer. What do you say to those who are aspiring to write and those who have a little seasoning but need help about why this is an important uh, kind of conference for them to uh, to come together with others and to hear from folks like you? Well, you got to come out of your shell. Uh, you know, if you want to make any, any headway in your writing, you're going to have to hop on with other writers, editors, people that can give you advice. It's, it's like learning anything else. It, it really helps to surround yourself with other people who are involved in the same thing. Mm-hmm. Pick up tips from them. Uh, just, uh, you're never going to be a good writer just living in a shell. You know? So you need to turn out and see what's going on. As a matter of fact, that's what I need to do. I've been out of the loop so long, I'm amazed that <laughs> the changes that have occurred <laughs> well, being the father of Christian fiction, I imagine you're just worn out. Well, I'm the grandfather of Christian <laughs> fiction now. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about what you'll be bringing to the conference this year as the keynote speaker. Well, I'm doing the key. Well, yeah, I'm doing the keynote speak, uh, speaking. Uh, the theme of the conference is uh, filled with his wisdom, and so I want to address. Oh, just the first place you can find wisdom. For living mm. in our weird world, I titled my talk "Living in Ephesus." Because huh. that's kind of where we are. You yes. know, Paul came to the city of Ephesus, and it was just one of those pagan kind of cities. And yet, uh, boy, he brought the gospel there and really made a difference. And so, I'd like to help our our writers and aspiring writers just get a grip on the math, the magnitude, the magnitude of God's plan for the ages and how we fit into it, and make sure that that's where our basis is, and it really gives you a whole different perspective of the world we're living in here. Hmm. Yeah. I often hear the phrase, you know, write about what you know. As a Christian writer, how important is your internal life and your connection and relationship to Christ in the in terms of the quality of expression that, that reflects the gospel, even if it's not directly speaking about the gospel? It's going to affect your worldview, and you're writing from your worldview. So uh, your whole perspective of life, of morality, of good and evil, of uh, good and sad endings, uh, human flaws, human dignity, it's all going to be based on a foundation of God's Word and Christian thinking. So uh, it's going to be a lot different, because other writers that work in, you know, they don't have that worldview. A lot of times they're writing ups That's what happens. A lot of times the writing becomes uh, futile, um, empty. It's open ended. Uh, there's, there's a much better. Are you there? I'm here. <laughs> Okay, I had another call trying to come in. I don't know if it interrupted me or not. Well, I wanted to mention for folks who are contemplating the uh, the conference, and I would encourage people, even those who are timid, to consider coming to the 2017 Summer Conference. For one thing, it's a very comfortable place to be. You're, you'll be with like-minded people, and you'll have the opportunity to connect with a very seasoned writer like Frank Peretti, as well as those who are somewhere in the middle or just starting out. Some of the things you can anticipate, there's an early bird session creating compelling novels and scripts. Uh, there's a, a 10 morning coaching classes, one-on-one appointments, 
appointments with editors and agents. There are three free manuscript reviews by editors and agents, mentoring appointments with professional authors, and much, much more. Now, was there ever a time for you, uh, Frank Peretti, that you were a, a bit timid about identifying yourself at a, as a writer or imagining that uh, you would find uh, success at all, let alone the level of success that has been yours? Oh, yeah. You can be unsure of yourself, but, uh, well, for me, and I'm sure the, the writers, though, they'll identify with this. It's something you, you just got to do it. Mm-hmm. You just got to do it. You're made to do it. And when I wrote my first novel, I had no idea if it would ever be published. I just knew I had to write it. There was one thing I wanted to do before I died. So <laughs> I think when the Lord lays something on your heart like that, you just follow through and you trust Him for the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what would you say... Um, you would attribute your success to. There are a lot of people who feel compelled to write. They are writing, but maybe don't get it to a level where it will be published or it will be widely read. What advice do you give to those who are still on that road towards success but haven't quite arrived? Well, know your craft and know how to make a good story. And uh, that's half nuts and bolts, mechanical knowledge, knowing how to build a good story. And then the other half is intuition that you... You're either, you know, you're born with it, the Lord gives it to you, and you also pick up on it the more you do it. Uh, I'll be doing a workshop at the conference, and I'll cover a lot of that kind of stuff, you know, advice on how to write a better book. Well, you can't get much better advice than advice from Frank Peretti, who, I, as I mentioned, is a perpetual best-selling author. Well, again, we are so thrilled that you're coming to the Portland area to be a part of this summer conference. Uh, it's a, a wonderful uh, several days of hanging out with like-minded people, refining your craft and so on. And uh, we look forward to seeing you right here in Portland. Oh, it'll be fun. I'll be hanging around and just meeting people, and uh, just I'm looking forward to it. it I've been there before, and it's always a lot of fun. Well, it'll be funner this time, if I can put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Georgine. Uh, bye-bye. Now, again, Frank Peretti is one of two keynote speakers, and I wanted to mention the uh, second who is also going to be there. That is keynoter Tessa Afshar. She's an award-winning author of historical and biblical fiction. Her novel, Land of Silence, was voted by Library Journal as one of five top Christian fiction titles in 2016 and was nominated for the 2016 Romantic Times Reviewer's Choice Award for Best Inspirational Romance. Harvest of Gold won the prestigious 2014 Christie Award and the Historical Romance category, and her book Harvest of Rubies was the finalist for the 2013 ECPA Book Award in the fiction category. And she's going to be right here in the Portland area uh, to talk with you and others who aspire to be or perhaps are already successful writers but want to hone your craft uh, just a bit. As I mentioned, there are all kinds of opportunities uh, for workshops and classes, and uh, Frank Peretti himself will be teaching, as I'm, I'm guessing that his uh, fellow keynoter, uh, Tessa Afshar, will also be available for teaching as well. And again, that's coming up Tuesday, August the 15th through Friday, August the 18th. And let me encourage you to go to the website to learn more about that. That's OregonChristianWriters.org. Oregon Christian Writers. Org. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back for the final segment of the Monday edition of the... Actually, this is the Tuesday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. I'm off a day because, as you may know, I took Monday off as sort of a celebration day following the... Um, well, how do you describe it? Dan Rice has the pick line removed 
Uh, all of the tubes are gone. There's no more antibiotics coursing through his body, sapping him of his energy. And so we spent the day just hanging out, uh, reflecting on all that had happened over the last eight weeks and uh, rejoicing that that uh, that phase is behind us for the next month. He's going to be monitored with blood cultures to make sure that uh, no infection, including the original, will return and that uh, would require any additional care, including the possibility of antibiotics or a heart valve replacement. So we are grateful uh, to be in this position. I drove into work today and dropped Dan Rice off at the courthouse. And uh, this is his first day back again in eight weeks. There were two weeks before he began his six-week course of antibiotics. The first, he thought he had a bad case of the flu, then the week in the hospital, and, well, the rest you now know. So I'm thankful to the Lord uh, for carrying us through that. I'm thankful for many of you who prayed uh, and expressed your care for us through this season as well. It means so much. It really, um, it's hard to explain how meaningful it is because you, you sense that you are being buoyed up by the prayers of others when you're at that point of exhaustion. And so I, I'm grateful for your, um, your prayers and concern. When we got in the car to drive in this morning, the first thing I noticed was how hazy it was, but I'd forgotten for just a moment that this is probably still the result of uh, the smoky conditions uh, from uh, fires elsewhere and thought maybe it was a bit overcast. I even for a moment thought maybe we'll have a little sprinkle. Well, that didn't happen. The Portland area, as you know, has been dealing with smoky, hazy conditions and poor air quality for about a week now. And forecasters at the National Weather Service, they say the smoky conditions could last until the end of this week. Um, adding to the haze on uh, this morning, our fog, and that was what we thought we saw, and high clouds that moved around a weak upper level low from uh, uh, northern California. The fog should clear by uh, late or did clear by late morning, early afternoon. So it's difficult to see that but because we still have the haze, but it did. Even after the fog cleared, smoke was uh, still noticeable and is. Air quality sensors continue to report moderately uh, poor air quality. Uh, the alert will continue through at least this morning, and I'm not sure where it stands at this point. Temperatures uh, should top out around 90 degrees today. Humidity will remain high and contribute to that muggy feeling that we've had for the past few days. The remainder of the week looks similar with Highs in the low 90s, mostly clear skies by the afternoon, but they tell us there may be a little rain in the forecast in the not-too-distant future. Well, although Portland lost the chance to beat the record of consecutive days at 90-plus degree temps on uh, Sunday, the high was 88, Salem is on target to beat the record of 10 consecutive days equaling or exceeding 90 degrees uh, today. The original record was set in 1938 and again in August of 1967. Uh, Salem should easily reach 90 degrees today and set a new uh, record at 11 days. Salem weather records uh, date back to 1893. So I'm not sure if I should congratulate Salem or or weep. I'm not sure, but that's just the way it is. Meanwhile, they are posting now exact times down to the seconds that the eclipse will be over your particular city, Portland, Salem, Depot Bay, Madras. You can go to KGW.com. They have that information. You can find it elsewhere as well. Eclipse2017.nasa.gov also has that information. Uh, Even if you live outside the zone of eclipse totality... I just love the sound of that thing. Say in Portland, Oregon, NASA has created this uh, interactive map to help you find where to be and when 
to uh, maximize your viewing of the eclipse. That gives the start and the end times of the rare solar treat for every city in its path. Well, NASA has a map. It lets you zoom into your community, find out exactly when the eclipse will begin, when you'll see the totality of it in front of the uh, the moon moving completely in front of the sun, and when the last moment you'll see it uh, at all down to a tenth of a second. So if you have a clock that's accurate, you could get a pretty good view. In uh, Portland, for example, it starts, uh, or rather the start of the partial eclipse is at 906 the maximum eclipse is 1019, and the end of the partial eclipse, 1138. Now, in Salem, you've got the partial eclipse at 905, the total eclipse at 1017, the maximum eclipse at 1018, the end of the total eclipse at 1019, and the end of the partial eclipse at 1137. But again, you can go to eclipse2017.nasa.gov for more information and the specific timing of the eclipse in your particular area. So that's pretty thrilling that uh, they can tell you exactly when to be standing up with your glasses on, and you do need them. You can take them off for just a moment once the sun is totally eclipsed, the, or rather the moon is totally eclipsed the sun, if you happen to be in that area. But beyond that, you need to have those safety glasses for your own protection. Well, I was sad to hear today that country music icon Glenn Campbell has died at the age of 81. His family announced it is with the heaviest of hearts that we announce the passing of our beloved husband, father, grandfather, and legendary singer and guitarist Glenn Travis Campbell at the age of 81, following his long and courageous battle with Alzheimer's disease. Well, his publicist confirmed that he died uh, this morning in Nashville. The legend behind uh, hits including Wichita Lineman, which is an amazing thing when you think about it. You write a song about a Wichita lineman and it, it goes, you know, platinum. Uh, and by the time I get to Phoenix, recently released his final studio album. He was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease about six years ago, was valiant in his walk uh, out and away from memory. Uh, he won five Grammys, sold more than 45 million records, had 12 gold albums, 75 chart hits, including number one songs with Rhinestone Cowboys, Southern Nights. His uh, performance of the title song from True Grit in 1969, uh, in which he played a Texas Ranger alongside Oscar-winning uh, John Wayne, received an Academy Award nomination. He twice won Album of the Year awards from the Academy of Country Music and was voted into the Country Music Hall of Fame back in 2005. Seven years later, he received a Grammy for Lifetime Achievement. He released more than 70 of his own albums and in the 90s recorded a series of gospel CDs in 2011 farewell album, Ghost on the Canvas, included contributions from Jacob Dylan, uh, Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick, and Billy Corgan of Smashing Pumpkins. His abilities to play and sing and remember songs began to rapidly decline after his diagnosis in 2011. His wife, Kim Campbell, said in a press release in April, a feeling of urgency grew to get him into the studio one last time to capture what magic was left. It was now or never. Well, they did capture that magic, and it was never to return. He revealed he had Alzheimer's disease in 2011, but he went on on to record two albums and play more than 150 concerts. At the time, his wife said the tour was a way to help her husband combat the brain-ravaging disease and spend time with family members who made up his uh, band and traveled with him. He also starred in a documentary about his life with Alzheimer's, Glenn Campbell, I'll Be Me. He won a Grammy for his song, I'm Not Gonna Miss You, which plays at the conclusion of the documentary. The song also was nominated for a 2015 Oscar. His wife revealed in March that the singer could no 
longer play guitar or sing. In an interview in April, she said that uh, faith was always, it has always been the central part of our relationship. I'm so pleased that as um, Glenn had entered the later stages of this illness, it's evident that he has retained his awareness of God. That really comforts me to know that he has the sense that God is present in his life, that he is not alone. He was married four times, had eight children, as he would uh, confide in painful detail. Uh, He suffered uh, for his fame and made offers, uh, others rather, suffer as well. But toward the end of his life and in his final marriage, he had a profound relationship with Christ that he carried uh, with him right until his death at the age of 81. So uh, he has gone on to his reward. Well, taking a look at the remainder of this week on Wednesday, we're going to talk with Dr. Michael Guion. He's the author of The Null Prophecy, published by Regnery. On Thursday, we'll talk with Dr. Everett Piper, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth, also published by Regnery. And then on Friday, we'll lighten things up and have a bit of fun. But if there's breaking news, we will break in with it. Well, I want to thank uh, James Blend for engineering today's program. Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James for producing today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.